Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you all. Great to see uh, so many visitors, and I will echo what Philip said earlier. It was such a blessing last night to have a number of you share your gifts with us, and uh, we were truly blessed by that. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of John and chapter 11. Our congregation has been doing a series through the book of Judges, uh, but um, we decide we're going to take a break from Gideon just for uh, one week here, Lord willing, to think uh, particularly about the resurrection. And uh, toward that end, we're going to look at uh, a resurrection that happened a few weeks prior to Jesus' own resurrection, uh, which is the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, uh, children, how many of you have been to a funeral before? Have you been to a funeral? Okay, a few of you have. Well, I'm glad that... Uh, not uh, too many of you have had to go to a funeral, but some of you have, and certainly you will. And uh, so I want you to listen, because this, in a sense, is Jesus going to a funeral. And do you think, are, are people gen- generally happy at a funeral, or are they sad at a funeral? What do you think? Good, that's right. They're generally, they're very sad at a funeral, because they're saying goodbye to a loved one. And there's a sense of loss there. So I want you to listen because as we read, and this is kind of a long passage, but it helps us understand what Jesus says to us about death and uh, something that's uh, more powerful than death. Now let's give attention to God's word. This is John chapter 11, and I'll read uh, the first 40 verses here. This is God's word. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha, It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. And then when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then the rock, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. This is the word of God. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Well, sports fans uh, seem to have a special place in their hearts for come-from-behind victories. Reggie Miller scoring eight points in nine seconds to beat the uh, New York Knicks in Madison Square Garden back in 1995. Peyton Manning uh, leading the Colts on a 21-point comeback in the last four minutes on Monday Night Football against Tampa Bay in 2003. Andrew Luck uh, leading the Colts from 28 points down in the second half to win a playoff game against the Chiefs in 2014. Uh, We love comebacks. I don't have any recent comebacks to share with you, so this is our plight here in Indiana. (laughs) But we love great come-from-behind victories. And in some ways, The story of Lazarus is a a bit of a come-from-behind victory. A man who was dead and buried. Uh, He wasn't in the hospital and they were wondering, should we shut off the machines or not? He was dead. He was wrapped up in the grave clothes. He was put into the tomb and he was left there to decay. And that man 
came back to life. And we might read this story, and I know it's familiar for many of us, we might hear this and we might think, well, this is an interesting story, it's, it's inspiring, tells us something about Jesus, but what does this really have to do with me? And I think as we look at this passage, uh, I hope what we'll see is that Lazarus really is a paradigm for each and every person, that each and every one of us is dead spiritually. That's what the Bible says about us. And we need to be raised from the dead. We need a come-from-behind victory against all odds. And the only way that's going to happen is if Jesus Christ does something. And so as we look at the passage, I, I hope we'll be able to see this morning, this point is in your outline in the bulletin, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. And so we need to hear his voice come out to him and live in him. And children, if you're going to draw a picture for me this morning, you might draw a picture of this, this cave that with the stone being rolled away and Lazarus coming out of the grave. And I want you to listen for what God would teach us about why that is so important. Well, the first thing I'd like us to notice as we work through the passage is that you and I have a problem with death. We all have a problem with death. Here we see just some weeks before Jesus is going to be crucified himself, this moving encounter with Lazarus. And this is the only place in the Bible where the, the, uh, this event is described. One of the commentators calls this one of the mo most remarkable chapters in the New Testament. And it does give us a very fascinating window on Jesus as he deals with this situation. Now, what had happened earlier in the book, Jesus had done a number of miracles, and in chapter 9, he had actually given a man back his sight. And this has created quite a controversy. And then in the ensuing discussion, Jesus made it clear that he was claiming to be God. And so the Jewish leaders there uh, led a, a mob that wanted to stone Jesus. And so uh, Jesus and his disciples had, had moved away from Jerusalem. And uh, the end of chapter 10 tells us they were outward John had been baptizing, John the Baptist. So they're out by the Jordan River, away from Jerusalem. That's where they are when this news comes to them that a certain man named Lazarus was sick. And the text in verse 1 identifies Lazarus as being from Bethany. Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. It was on the Mount of Olives, on the slopes of the mountain. Um, but it was a little uh, backwater. And it seems to be the place where Jesus stayed most often when he was coming to Jerusalem during his earthly ministry because he had friends there. This family had become very uh, dear to him, Mary, Martha, and their younger brother, Lazarus. Now Mary, it tells us here in verse 2, was the one who anointed Jesus with oil. This actually happens a couple of times where Jesus is anointed and then... She used her hair to wipe off his feet. And it's actually described in chapter 12 uh, in this gospel. So this is the family. Jesus was loved by this family. They hosted him every time he came to the area. And furthermore, Jesus loved them. You see in verse 3, this note that comes from the sisters, they say to him, Lord, behold, him who you love is sick. And so uh, they understand this close personal relationship they have with the Lord Jesus Christ. They were on a first name basis with Jesus and they knew him well. And what's so interesting then is what we read in verse 5. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. It's not despite the fact that he loved them, he stayed two more days away, but because he loved them, he loved them, so therefore he did not come right away when they called for his help. And what this tells you and me is that people Jesus loves are going to go through very difficult times of suffering at times. And that's not because Jesus doesn't love them. It's because he loves you that he allows you sometimes to go through times of suffering and bereavement. Verse 17 tells us when Jesus arrives on the scene, uh, Lazarus is already dead and in the tomb. And this whole scene that's described in children, we, we were talking about this earlier. What do you see at a funeral? It's, it's, it's grief, it's despair, it's people who are mourning in the house, people who are mourning at the graveside. Uh, the Jews were famous for their, uh, their grief that they would express uh, with just weeping and wailing. And this is all going on when Jesus comes into the scene. And, and what's, I think, incredibly striking is that the text tells us Jesus groans in his spirit, in verse 33 and 38, and then verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. It's profound. Um, Because Jesus knows how this particular story is going to end up, and yet when Jesus comes into this situation and he sees sees the devastation caused by this death, uh, he's moved to tears. And it, it, it's, it's another reminder that Jesus was truly human in every sense of the word, body and soul. He was a human, and he weeps. But there's another thing going on here, because Jesus is also the Son of God, and he is the creator, uh, John's Gospel tells us. I don't know if you've seen these climate activists who are throwing soup on famous paintings. What's the proper response when a famous uh, work of art is defaced? It's outrage, right? It's, it's, it's pain, it's, especially if you were the artist. And here's Jesus, the creator of the world, seeing the damage that has been done to his creation because human beings turned away from God. And the curse is now on the earth. And, and this is the reality for all of us this pain and suffering. Jesus sees the results of the spoiling of his creation and he weeps. And I think Jesus sees the effects of tornadoes destroying people's communities and killing people. He sees school children gunned down because they're Christians in a Christian school. He sees less dramatic things. He sees uh, people aging and losing their faculties and dying. And this grieves the Lord in his human nature. And it grieves us, too, because this is the world that you and I live in. We live in a world where death is inevitable. And every day we're just moving one day closer to our death one day closer to losing someone we love, 
uh, one day closer to mourning and to devastation and to loss. And as much as we hate to think about that, that's the reality. And this passage reminds you and me that we have a problem with death. But secondly, we see here in the passage that Jesus intends to bring good out of suffering and even death. So death is an insurmountable problem for you and for me. We can't do anything to solve death. But it's not a problem for Jesus. Jesus says in verse 4, this sickness is not unto death. Uh, some think in the timeline here that Lazarus is probably already dead when Jesus gets this word. And what he's saying is the, the end result of this illness is not going to be death. That's not going to be the final outcome here. In fact, the whole thing is designed to accomplish God's purposes. And God has at least two purposes that he makes clear in the text. And the first one is to increase the faith of his disciples and the other people who are witnessing this. Because you notice, after Jesus says, let's go, uh, let's go see Lazarus, what do all his disciples say? They say, great idea, Jesus, we should do that? No. Uh, they say, well, Jesus, they, were, they were, wanted to kill you there. Uh, this would be suicide. This would be crazy for us to go back. Which just indicates they, they don't really get it who Jesus is. They don't understand what his mission is, but at this point, they've seen him walk on water, they've seen him feed 5,000 people, they've seen him heal the blind, and they still don't understand who he is. And Jesus wants them to get it. Thomas really sums it up well in verse 16. Oh, well, let's go with them. We might as well all die. This is, uh, he's being facetious here. He's being sarcastic. This is a suicide mission. But Jesus' desire is that they would believe. Look at verse 14. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. So this episode of suffering and loss is so that their faith in Jesus would increase. The second purpose is so that Jesus would be glorified. If you look again in verse 4, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is what Jesus, he, he means through this difficult situation for his people's faith to grow and for Jesus and the Father to be glorified. And, and one of the things that's going on here, we talked about this last week when we were looking at the life of Gideon, is that Christ's power is shown more uh, brilliantly against a background of weakness. Again, I quote to you from 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. These cross-references are in the, the bulletin. Where Paul writes, He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I most gladly will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's power seen more clearly when we are weak. Now, if, if you're like me, uh, appearing weak, having, having the reality that you are weak, exposed, is, is not something you like. It's the last thing in the world that you want. You don't want people to know that you are weak. It's one of the reasons why uh, some people are so difficult uh, for them to ask for help. Even in the church, we, we see this. It, it, it's hard 
uh, for us to ask for help. But of course, the Bible reminds us that our strength is, is just an illusion. And, and God wants us to see that clearly from time to time. And so these people that Jesus really loved, you people whom Jesus really loves, out of that love, he allows this illness and this untimely death to come into the situation. But from beginning to end, the death of Lazarus here, the illness and the death of Lazarus, is meant to bless the people. It's not meant as a punishment. It's not meant that he's mad at them. He's trying and he's intending and he will bless them through it. Now the question is in your own life, do do you see this? When you're in the midst of these situations, we don't perceive. We can't see how it's going to end. But you have to believe what he says. He's doing this because he loves you and he wants to bless you, to build your faith and to increase his glory through you. So we see here Jesus' absolute commitment to bring good out of suffering and even out of death. And he can do this because thirdly, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. In verse 20, we see Martha coming out to him. And Martha's got uh, a reasonable question, comment. Her sister Mary says the same thing later. Uh, She comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that shows she doesn't really understand who Jesus is either at this point. Because if you understand Jesus is God, you know that he doesn't have to be there. Uh, to, to cause uh, Lazarus to continue to survive. Uh, Jesus responds to her, your brother will rise again. And uh, in verse 24, Martha says, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. This is interesting. She's thinking abstract theology. This was a Jewish belief that there would be a general resurrection of the dead at the last day. And so she affirms this theological truth um, But Jesus wants her to understand, no, he says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. This is not about theological principles. It's not about abstractions. I, me, my person, knowing me is the source of resurrection and life. It's a person. This is the fifth of the seven I am sayings in the book of John. Um, and in his language, Jesus is making a claim to be divine. He's saying, I am God. And as God, I am the one who gives resurrection and gives life. And there are physical and spiritual dimensions to this. If you look again in verse 25, he who believes in me, though he may die physically, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me spiritually, shall never die, spiritually. And what he's talking about there is if you believe in him, this is what he says, if you live and believe in him, you will never die spiritually. And furthermore, after your physical body dies, it will also live again when Jesus comes again. That death will not be the final word for you. Life will be a life that can never be taken away from you, that will last forever and ever. 
And why is this the case? It's the case because all people are spiritually dead by nature. And unless he makes you alive spiritually, you can't be freed from death. You're trapped in death. William Hendrickson commenting on this says, even physical death fails to quench the believer's real life. On the contrary, such death is gain for it introduces him into the full enjoyment of life. For the person in Jesus Christ, death becomes a doorway into a fuller type of life. It's not the end. It's not the end that the people in the world see it as. And this is because Jesus takes the sting out of death. Jesus, by dying in our place, takes the punishment for our sin and frees us from having to face that punishment ourselves. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection turns our death into a doorway where we go into a fuller life united to the Lord. And Jesus is the only one who can do this. He, he shows here in this passage that he has the power to give life. But then just some weeks later, when he himself rises from the dead due to his own power, he conquers death for all time for his people. He proves here in this chapter he has the power of resurrection. John Calvin commenting on this says, for not only did Christ give a remarkable proof of his divine power in raising Lazarus, but he likewise placed before our eyes a lively image of our future resurrection. What a wonderful picture for us to see that you will receive your body back again, perfected. I, I used to not put that much stock in that. I was young, I was healthy, I felt great. I could do whatever I wanted to do. And with every year, last time I went to the doctor and was complaining about something, he said, the only way to fix what you're unhappy about is to take 25 years off your life. And I don't have the ability to do that. And as you get older, you start to realize things are not actually going to get better. It's, it's just, I mean, they don't have to go down, maybe it goes down at different rates, right? But it's not getting, it's not getting better at this point. And, and that promise of a resurrected body sounds really great. But so many of us are like Martha. We believe certain things are true, but not necessarily true for us. I, I've heard people say, I know Jesus forgives sin, but... I'm not sure he can forgive my sins. Or that just Jesus forgives sin kind of in the abstraction without coming to terms with the fact that, no, I'm a sinner. I have sins that need to be forgiven. And Jesus says he forgives my sins. That Jesus will give me salvation and life. And that's what he's doing here. Martha's wanting to talk about something that's going to happen at the end of time. And Jesus is telling him, I am the resurrection and the life for you for Lazarus, and you're going to see that in just a few moments. And he makes that same promise to you. He says to you, I am the resurrection and the life. But fourthly, 
There's a, there's a tremendous warning surrounding this passage. It's not enough to just know that Jesus is the source of life. It, it's not enough. If this passage shows us anything, it shows us that it's possible to see the work of Christ and uh, even perhaps to appreciate it on one level, but not to actually benefit from it. Look down at the end uh, where we ended our reading, verse 44. Jesus says, uh, you know, cut him loose. Let him go free. Here's this resurrected man. Now look at what the very next verse is, verse 45. Then many of the Jews who'd come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And if you look down in verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. And then if you go down in chapter 12 to verse 9, now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. There's no doubt that he had done the miracle. It wasn't like, well, let's just tell everyone this was a big fake. Everybody knew that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. No, the solution is we have to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Not because we doubt the miracle, but because we don't like the implications. We don't want to bow down and worship Jesus. And this may seem incredible, but realize the same thing happened with Jesus himself. Jesus, who rose up again by his own power after he was dead, came back from the tomb on the first day of the week, and people didn't believe him either. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 6, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So this is what he had been taught, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. This is written within the lifetimes of these people. He's saying there's 500 eyewitnesses out there. No one could ever produce the body of Jesus. The tomb was empty. And the people who were alive at the time testified that they had seen the risen Lord. He says over 500 at one time. So you have to believe in some kind of mass hallucination that happened over many days and many places or that Jesus really rose from the dead. The evidence was there and it was overwhelming. And yet people still wouldn't believe. And we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus told a parable about a rich man who goes to hell. And the rich man asks for someone to be sent back from the dead to warn his brothers. And what is he told? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. The one rise from the dead. It's a heart issue. It's an unwillingness to believe. And so, yes, some refuse to believe. The Bible also warns us that there are others who, who say they believe, but they never really embrace Jesus as their only hope. 
Jesus himself says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Sobering verses. It's not enough to just say, yes, okay, Jesus rose from the dead. On a couple of occasions, I've been called to the bedside of um, people near the end of their lives. And uh, one elderly gentleman was the, the grandfather of a friend of mine, not a religious man at all. And so I read these verses, what Jesus says here. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. And he loved those words. I mean, he clung to those words like a drowning person clinging to a a life preserver. And his relatives who were there in the room, they clung to those words. What hope do you have as you're about to leave this world? And, And when I preached at his funeral, I mentioned these same words, and I could see... Uh, This man's relatives pointing to each other, that's the thing he read. That's the thing he read when when we were in the hospital. And I don't know if he embraced the Savior. I hope. But I do know wanting these words to be true is not enough. It's not enough. And if you're here this morning thinking, hey, it sounds great. Living after I die, that sounds great. Uh, Jesus as the resurrection, that sounds great. I, I like the sound of this. But you have not embraced Jesus as your Savior. Then you are not going to benefit from what he is teaching here. You see what Jesus says. He who believes in me, who lives and believes in me, shall never die. And he says to Martha, do you believe this? He says this to you also, do you believe this? Have you put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone? It's not enough just to know these things and to be aware of them and even to think well of them. And finally, we see here, you must hear his voice and come out to him. So in verse 38, Jesus, again, groaning over this terrible situation and the the tragedy of death, he tells them to take away the stone. And of course, he gets pushback on this. He's been dead four days. Jesus makes it clear he's doing this by the power of of the Father. And then he calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out. And Jesus proves that everything he's saying about being the resurrection and the life is true. J.C. Ryle commenting on this as the greatness of this miracle cannot possibly be exaggerated. The mind of man can scarcely take in the vastness of the work that was done. Here in open day, And before many hostile witnesses, a man, four days dead, was restored to life 
in a moment. Any of you who have seen a loved one deceased knows the utter finality. When they're gone, they're gone. And then there's all the rushing around and the funeral and the preparations and the coffin lowered into the ground. And you know that that's the end of it in this life. They're not coming back. And this is one of the reasons why it it was so important for this man to be dead for four days. Uh, There's this whole genre of books we have, right, about these people who died and went to heaven for so many minutes, hours, or whatever. I don't, I don't claim to have any idea what's going on there. Um, I don't think a machine you know, that's talking about your heartbeat is capable of saying when the spirit actually leaves the body. But I, I feel pretty strongly that four days uh, is long enough for us to be absolutely sure that this guy was dead. Deader than dead. And... Uh, He was not coming back. There's no ambiguity here at all. And recognize, this is why I say, this is a picture of your situation and my situation. Spiritually, we are deader than dead. We're the one in the tomb decaying. No life in us. No ability to come back. And we must hear Jesus call to us, come out of the tomb. And and of course, how can we do that if we're dead? We can't. He's got to make us alive. It's such an incredible picture because Lazarus does not cooperate with this in any way at all. He is a decaying corpse. And so the only way he's able to walk out of the tomb is because Jesus has made him alive. Jesus has reunited his spirit with his body and has healed his body perfectly. And then he hears the call and he comes out. Matthew Henry commenting on this says, He calls him out of the grave, speaking to him as if he were already alive and had nothing to do but come out of the grave. He does not say unto him, live, for he himself must give life. But he says to him, move, for when by the grace of Christ we live spiritually, we must stir up ourselves to move. The grave of sin in this world is no place for those whom Christ has quickened, and therefore they must come forth. And Jesus promises, if you're one of his children, you will hear his voice and you will live. And this is the call to you. Uh, If you're wondering, am I alive or not? Has my spirit been made alive by the Lord Jesus Christ? And you question whether it has. Please come and talk to us. Pray and ask the Lord to work in your heart. Because when he gives life, then we're able to hear his voice. And then when he calls to you, you've got to come. You've got to respond. You've got to walk out of the tomb and take off the grave clothes. 
and stop living like a dead person. This is what he says to Martha. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And so we have to live in him. He becomes the center of our life. He becomes our purpose in life. He becomes the guiding force in our life. And the thing that gives us joy and hope and purpose. Jesus says it in another place in this book. He said, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. He has passed from death into life. And that's the beautiful thing, that this eternal life starts the moment we come to faith in Christ. It starts now. So it's not just about life that goes on and on. It's life that's of a particular quality. It's a heavenly life uh, that begins now and will be perfected when we meet the Lord face to face. And recognize, you don't need perfect faith for this. Uh, Martha is still arguing with him about the body stinking. Right? Their faith is, is weak, and yet Jesus has made them alive. And they're going to grow as his servants. I'm sure I've shared this before, but another elder in our denomination was uh, sharing about his own father when his father died some years ago. And he said, um, my dad, whenever we had our family together, used to pray, Lord, keep our family circle unbroken in heaven. Because he knew that the family circle was going to be broken on earth. It is inevitable. And our only hope is that we're all connected to Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life. That our family circle would remain unbroken in heaven. This is what Jesus wants you to know that that is only possible through him. The one who has the power to raise the dead, the one who himself has gone to, the de to death and come back to life to give us victory. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Hear his voice. Come out to him and live in him. Let's pray and let's give him thanks. Heavenly Father, it's hard for us to express how amazing this passage is, how amazing our Savior is, how great your love for sinners is. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that apart from you, we are just like Lazarus. We are stuck in a tomb of our own sin and our selfishness and that it is only through Christ who forgives us and who has died in our place, who can deliver us and bring us to life. How we thank you that our Savior is the resurrection and the life. And how we pray that each one of us would know new life in Christ. And that by the power of your Spirit, we would live and believe in you. 
and we would embrace this promise that we will never die. Yes, our bodies will die for a time we'll be separated from them, but our spirits will live on with you forever until we are reunited with our perfected bodies and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity in your presence. Lord, help us to believe these things and to experience the blessing of it even now. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. And let's uh, sing our praise to the Lord who does rescue us from the grave. We'll uh, go back to the blue psalm books and uh, we'll sing Psalm 22, Selection E. So uh, we sang an earlier portion of this psalm uh, before the sermon. Uh, This psalm, of course, at the beginning describes the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And then it ends with this wonderful note of victory and triumph because death could not hold our Savior. And so you see, uh, we praise the Lord. Uh, It mentions in stanza 13, uh, those who cannot keep their souls alive. And uh, then in 14, a seed who will rise to do his will. And because the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, all those who are in Christ also rise victorious that we might do his will and that we might say with the psalmist, this is the work of God, that he has done this. It was he. Let's stand and praise our Lord for his goodness to us.